Welcome to Better Than Nothing. This is Ken Root. Events of the day often cause me to think back to my experiences that may relate to the people, the land, and the governments of my past. In 1986, I was part of a group of agriculturalists who traveled to the Soviet Union. That was sort of a big deal. Many of my memories are like yesterday, and we were mostly agricultural broadcasters with the purpose of seeing the cropland and the people of the interior of Russia and Ukraine, although we traveled to several major cities at the time. Even though several years have passed since, there are still similarities, I believe, to what we experienced. So let me bring in Mike Railsback from Kansas City, who was a young farm broadcaster on that most exciting trip. Mike, how are you? I'm doing. Uh, I'm doing great, Ken. Uh, I'm. I'm like you. I think of our trip almost every day when I watch the news these days. Uh, what, well, a, were, what a trip that was! You at the time were a farm broadcaster at KFEQ in St. Joe, Missouri. Uh, Gene Millard says hello. I saw him today. Oh, yeah, what a great station! Yeah. And then you moved to Kansas City. You did farm news there, uh-huh. and then you did uh, traffic for yeah. quite a while with 61 Country. A lot of people know that. I lived in Kansas City for 10 years, by the way, from 1994 to 2004, and uh, you guys were quite the force in the market. Yeah, it was it was qu- quite an amazing station. It was a lot like KFEQ, and it, it was a lot of news and information, but also country music was the, the, the music format, and they they succeeded on AM playing music years after nobody thought that was possible. And, and the reason they were successful, I think, was because it had such a strong lineup of uh, personalities and, and just a very unique station that'll probably never be duplicated again because it's it doesn't fit a, a cookie-cutter format that seems to be the pattern now. Yes. Yeah. Well, radio has had its rise and fall, and may it rise again. Uh, <laughs> we'll just have to wait and see. But the Internet has changed so many things. And Still, though, I contend that radio, television, newspaper, whatever it may be, is only good if you have good people who go report stories in an authentic manner that brings back the reality to you as the viewer, listener, reader. And you and I had that opportunity at that time. Now, let's go back to where people can appreciate what we were thinking then. It was... um, an uncomfortable time, but by the time that we were going there, the Soviet Union was offering a period of uh, glasnost or mm-hmm. openness, right? and they were letting people come in, theoretically. And so some people from our farm broadcaster organization put things together to see if we wanted to travel there. Now, we all had to pay our way, mm-hmm. but we were there in the summer of 1986, which is also a time that had a number of other activities going on. Do you recall some of those? In 1986, I, I well, certainly I remember the things opening up in, in the Soviet Union with Gorbachev. Uh, the rest of the world, uh, I think 
I'm not sure as, as far as any major news stories. I know personally, I had two young kids at home yep. and my wife and uh, the kids were kind of like after a couple of weeks, you know, where's dad? <laughs> when's, when's dad going to make it home? But yep. I think most of the world, you know, you think back to the technology we have now, if we'd had it then, how much more we could have communicated back with what we were seeing. But I just know going to go the Soviet Union was still very foreign, uh, very mysterious. And uh, flying in, I thought to myself, what are you doing here? But I wouldn't trade that trip for anything. Well, at the time, ahead of us, Chernobyl had blown up. Oh, yeah, Chernobyl, Chernobyl yeah. was in Ukraine. And uh, that made it look like we weren't going to get to go. And then Russia, again, part of this glasnost, had the goodwill games. And the goodwill games at the time were giving them way too many foreign journalists. Ah. And so um, we had a problem with our visa. And as I remember it, uh, they pretty much told us that our trip was canceled. I so, remember that. I remember that. It was like, was it three weeks it was canceled or put off? So we took a breath, and here's what happened. Okay. On our trip was a man by the name of Jerry Holly, who was a general manager of WIBW Radio and Television in Topeka. I remember Jerry. Jerry was on a first-name basis with a man by the name of Senator Robert Dole. <laughs> And yeah. Senator Dole was, you know, a speed dial, if you relate to what that wow. was. To Jerry. Senator Dole had some influence. Yes. So uh, the story from Jerry and others of how this happened was that when we realized that this trip was not going to happen, Jerry called Senator Dole and he said, can you see if you can get the Soviets to renew our visas and let this group of 25 of us go mm -hmm. into the Soviet Union. Right. So there was this announcement in Washington, Senator Dole is going to the Soviet embassy. <laughs> and the media was bouncing that around. Of course, we didn't really know what was going on yet. Yeah. And I was all watching it. And here's, the, you know, they show him actually going into the Soviet embassy. Wow. And uh, I thought, what is this? The next day, we got the notice that... Mm -hmm our visas had been put back on. Right. Now, they were looking for all the other things that Dole had talked to the Soviets about at the embassy. There wasn't anything. It appears that he went in there, shot <laughs> the breeze with them, and said, would you allow a group of Kansas farmers uh -huh. to come in to your country? And they said yes. Well, uh, we were stretching it a bit that we were all Kansas farmers. I was in <laughs> Wichita, Hutchinson at the time, and I had a videographer with me. I was from Channel 12. Right. And yeah. we came in. I was president of NAFB that year. You were from St. Joe, Missouri. Uh -huh. um, we Which had, is close uh, to Kansas. Yeah, close to Kansas. That's right. And we had several people who were obviously from the Plains states. So we got a chance to get in there. Now, in our delegation, it was farm broadcasters from across the country, and we took some people with us. This is one of the brilliant things I think that uh, Rich Hull, who organized this trip, did, even though he didn't go on the trip. Right. He and others found people in agriculture that were specialists who could see things and to understand things and talk to us as media because we were all jointly on the trip, embedded together, if you will. Right. One of the men was a farmer from Missouri by the name of Bill Mann, who farmed and did real estate in the St. Joe area. 
Right. Another was Bob Zimmerman, who was a Case IH dealer in St. Joe. You probably remember him. No, Bob well. And then we also had Dave Canal, who was with Pioneer Seed. Dave's father had been a farm broadcaster. He had actually been for a while, but he was working more in public affairs, I think, but he still was an agronomist. And then we had Ed Curry, and Ed Curry was president of Curry Seed Company out of South Dakota. And uh, Ed uh, was probably one of the more senior people of our group. I'd say he was in his 60s at the time. And but you got, you got around fine. Oh, yeah. And he knew the seed business coming and going. And uh, so there was the group that went into Russia. How did you feel when you got into the country as far as the way that uh, our uh, guide, his name was Yuri, and uh, others uh, treated us? Uh, uh, they seemed to keep us apart from their yeah. own people as much as they could. Yeah, there's an interesting story about that being kept apart. I I got separated from the group once because of that. But I, I, I think, you know, Yuri was our, our interpreter, but I think he was also there to keep an eye on us and make sure we went where we were supposed to go. But, I, I you know, I felt really, really um, like I was in a foreign land, obviously. But uh, I just, I you know, you felt somewhat unease at uh, an, an uneasiness because the uh, – they would take your passport, if I remember, when it, we checked yeah. into, remember, the, was it the Cosmos Hotel in Moscow? That's correct. It's supposed to be a pretty first-rate hotel. But it was a foreigner hotel. There were no was, Russians that were right. staying there, just us. Yeah, they were just, just foreigners, and uh, and they they would take our passports when we checked in, which I was never really comfortable with that, but what are you going to do? But, uh, I, you know, I, another small story, I remember being in the lobby of the, of the Cosmos hotel. And uh, I don't know what kind of beverage I had, but I thought I needed some ice. And I asked one of the uh, maitre d's or whatever you want to call them, uh, if I could get some ice. And he had a, a bowl with about uh, a dozen cubes and he gave, they were about half melted and he gave me one cube. And I thought, boy, this is not, this is no big gulp. I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, the, of course, one of the things about all of Europe uh, is that, Ice is something that they do not give you very much of. No, and unlike they, here. Yeah. They look at Americans like, you are so stupid. You, you yeah. have all this ice. But Yuri, in my view, was a little KGB agent. I uh, agree. Was, I agree. He was an informer. He, he, yeah. There was nothing about us that he was there to do to help us other than what he was required to do. Um, agree, and yeah. and he, yeah. he sort of was demeaning in a way, but we didn't feel badly about this. I, I was so taken with the fact that we were there and we were getting to tour Moscow. We went to this space museum. I don't know if you remember that or not. And I do. I they, do. They showed us all the things that they had done, all mm -hmm. the things, everything from aircraft to spacecraft. And of mm -hmm. course, the one that stuck with me the most was the Soyuz spacecraft that docked with the Gemini Apollo. spacecraft, Apollo. I I remember that seeing that, and that was that was impressive. So at, when the two of them had docked in space, and that was a big deal, and then we uh, got to see the aircraft outside, and looking at all these uh, TU aircraft that they had, mm -hmm. they looked like you know a DC eight, uh, a DC nine, and uh, somebody said, uh, you know, these look just like American aircraft, just like a seven twenty seven, yeah. And Yuri said, yes, because you stole them from us. 
<laughs> See, I didn't. I don't remember that part. I remember thinking they stole it from us. <laughs> they well, of course they did, but that's not the way they looked at it. They stole. We stole it from them. And yeah, didn't they have a space uh, shuttle too? I, I think uh, they were working on a type of space shuttle. But by yeah. that time, this was when our shuttle was just uh, just getting ready to fly, as I recall. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. About well, during the real big heyday this, when they're getting the shuttle going here. But uh, yeah, it's it's funny. The technology looks so, the aircraft looks so similar. It's like, yeah. boy, somebody copied who's somebody copied somebody right. here. Right. right. But our, our goal was to get out into the landscape and we got the chance to do that. And a part of it was in Ukraine. We were able to go to various mm-hmm. places there. And to me, the people and the land were more important than anything. And my videographer, Jeffrey Hardiman, managed to capture the faces of people who were out on the collective in state farms. And uh, I showed pictures quite a bit after that in Kansas. Yeah, you did a remarkable presentation, if I remember, on your trip. Just an amazing uh, demonstration of what you saw and heard. Well, that's very kind of you. Jeffrey said it was the best documentary ever shot out the window of a bus. <laughs> well, you know, you do what you got to do. Well, we did. And the people, these people would say, they look just like my grandfather and grandmother. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, they were, you know, they were Ukrainians and Ukrainians had the Mennonites from there had been the first to bring hard red winter wheat to the United States. And yeah. I recall meeting on a collective farm and taking a wheat weaving from Kansas mm-hmm. and yeah. giving that to the head of the collective farm and thanking them for what they had done for us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They, they definitely had a few shortfalls in production back in those days, but they, that was their breadbasket, If I remember right, that was their great plains uh, for the Soviet union. That They grew so much wheat there that it was a big deal for them. Well, it was, it was tremendous what they had as far as the land, but the way they farmed it was very questionable. And let me bring in my story of Bob Zimmerman, who was the machinery dealer. Case he I would age. go into places, and they had displays of machinery in Moscow, actually, because they had a big fair that they were showing off things. Uh-huh. And we'd be yeah. there, and the next thing we know, Bob would be gone. And somebody would say, where's Bob? And they said, well, he's under that combine over there. <laughs> yeah. Bob's line was, you can't tell anything about a machine by looking at the paint. You have to crawl in underneath. You have to get inside. You have to see what it is. And he would come out of these going, you can't believe how poorly these are built and how old their technology is. He said, you know, these are 1980s. There are wooden bushings in there. Yeah. yeah. Places that are going to break. The chains are going to break. Everything else is going to break. And he would just come out of these telling us all sorts of things of his, you know, his comparison of their machinery to ours. Yeah, I, I think it was a bright red, if I recall, but I'm, I'm sure the technology, yeah, it was good to have Bob there to, to let us know what the insides look like. Yeah. And uh, so much of it, I remember uh, out in the farm, so much of it was exposed to the weather. They had open sh- uh, machine sheds, and but so much of it, unlike a, you know, a, a good farm in Iowa or Nebraska or Minnesota, would most of it have the expensive stuff undercover, under a big machine shed, a lot of that on the on the farm uh, was exposed to weather to some degree, and I thought that that's really not a good way to preserve equipment, no matter what type it is. 
Mike Railsback is my guest. He and I traveled to the Soviet Union back in 1986 as a part of a delegation from the United States. We were on farms in Ukraine, as I recall, and we wanted to see how the people lived and worked. Right. These were peasants. They lived in the villages, small villages, but they didn't work hard. Uh, there was a line that was given to us by someone there. Mm. Their line was, we pretend to work and they yeah. pretend to pay us. You pretend to pay us. Yep. That, and that, I think it, that might have been Yuri. I'm not sure. I, I I remember he was somewhat a little sarcastic, sarcastic, but generally, yeah, that was the attitude. We'll do the minimum and you pay us what, you know, what you think you should pay us. But there was not any, it's my family farm. I want to keep it going for generations attitude. And I remember a small percentage of the city people would have a small, could have a garden plot out in the near the near the city, but they could grow food on their own, and they get got a lot of that from their small private plots. Yeah, well, that comes along with the the fact that people are inherently capitalist, but the Soviets had never been given a chance to be free. Right, um, and only after we left there in 1990 until recent times were they. But they were given the little plots. Um, maybe it would be half an acre uh, for these villages that each one of that they had and they shared. Uh-huh. Um, and they would work their butt off after they got through in the fields, <laughs> yeah. taking care of those little plots. And then they sold on what they referred to as not the black market, but the parallel market. Uh-huh. And the parallel market allowed them to sell to each other and to be able to receive a little bit of money for what they had, whether it was eggs or whether it was nuts or whether it was fruit, whatever yeah. it was at the time that they were able to sell. So it showed that the people were just accepting their fate, doing what they had to do. Yeah. And in doing their job, we found that, you know, here it was harvest season and this grain needed to be cut. And at four thirty in the afternoon on days that that far North, it didn't get dark until 10 o'clock. Uh-huh. They drove. They drove back home. Uh, some of those combines just left in the field. The smaller tractors and things were driven four or five miles back and forth. Sometimes yeah. they were driven back and forth at lunch. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, it just didn't make a whole lot of sense that they were all hired laborers. Uh, even the managers of the places were, uh, you know, that's the way that they ran it, and that mm-hmm. was acceptable. So we understood why their productivity was down, and as Americans was very hard for us to accept that they were so lackadaisical about their farming practices. Yeah, I, I, and I think that was a trouble with a lot of the industry there. I, I, I remember the little cars they made. I think they were like a, a Fiat model that they bought the, the tooling from. Uh, but you saw a lot of cars and a lot of trucks, especially in this larger city like Moscow, on the side of the road. Yeah. And, and they were they were not all lemons, but they were they were not the quality of cars that you would expect judging by the number that just broke down on the road and how they got them fixed is a good question too. But yeah, just there was, you didn't get a feeling of the symbol of quality with Soviet agriculture industry or anything. Yet their military was strong. Right. And their, their displays of their military were flashy. And I recall that we went to red square. We were able to see, I'll jump back to the cities here. Uh, Mm -hmm. various places, the soldiers would march along and uh, you got this feeling that uh, they were this powerful nation. 
and they did have nuclear weapons. They did have guns. Right. Um, but you weren't giving in, given any uh, credit or especially any money if under the Soviet system you were making consumer products. No. It wasn't anything that they were making that uh, except a generic product that people needed. I recall when I was in Kansas, another guy from there had was making a trip to Russia, to the Soviet Union, and he said, uh, you know, what can I bring you? And I said, well, I would love to have a fruit jar because I collect fruit jars, and there are thousands of different types of fruit jars in the U.S. with different lids and colors and things. So he said, okay. So he came back with this little, very uh, generic jar with no logos on it or anything. It was about um, maybe... Uh, I gosh, I don't know, maybe a liter in size. And I said, is this it? Did you see anything else? And he said, no. And I said, well, were there any other colors, any other kinds, any other closures? He said, no, this is it. They only yeah. have one fruit jar in Russia. Yeah. Yeah. And and I remember uh, going into a store and I am not sure whether it was Moscow or where it was, but just going into a store you would see a store here right before a blizzard, you know, when they cleaned out the shelves <laughs> here and they all, all hit the store the day before the, the snow hit. So that's what it looked like there. And I do remember they had a, if I recall, a, a special store called a dollar store. Yes. Or you could use, uh, you could use us dollars, German marks, and probably another currency, but you could not buy with rubles. They, they didn't want a ruble. They wanted real money, you know, dollars, marks, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. They had stores. You know, they stopped us a few times at uh, what I would just call tourist traps that they had set up for us to buy things. And there were some neat little things in there, the Matroshka dolls at all stack and things yeah. of that nature. And their capability in the crafts was very good. Their yeah, capability yeah. in the arts is incredible. Their museums and their buildings of the czar's era that they preserved were fascinating. Do you recall when we went to St. Petersburg, or it was yeah. called Leningrad at the time? I do, yeah. The Tsar's Summer Palace? Yes, beautiful. That was I was looking at some pictures the other day, and you see that occasionally on a newscast. The, that was just amazingly uh, gorgeous art uh, buildings and architecture. And, and I think, if I remember right, that's where they laid... That's where they held up against the the against the Germans during World War II. They they held them uh, from that location. But uh, yeah, that was that was bigger than or nicer than any museum you'd want to see anywhere. And it's become quite a tourist attraction in the post-Soviet era, uh, and uh, is um, much much nicer now. But this still does not resemble what it was, especially when you consider that much of that was built before any kind of pressure wa pressurized water systems, yeah. fountains everywhere that were run from a lake yeah. Uh, yeah. above. And they just did amazing things for the czar, for yeah. the leader, for those few people who were in power, and everybody else was peasant. One thing I've noticed on the news, uh, on the news that they show the apartment buildings in, in uh, Ukraine, but they were just like the apartment buildings, buildings in, the, in Russia at the time. There's a drabness to the to the everyday housing accommodations. Very drab, very uh, project like looking. Uh, really, no style at all. Buildings, just big concrete 
And I, from my understand, not very well built, big apartment buildings. Well, that's exactly how I would describe it, projects. Uh, yeah. And nobody got to live in a home. Everybody lived in government yeah. housing. An apartment, yeah. And uh, they, you just watched them work at that time, and you thought, what a, uh, what a dismal life that these people have. And I think that's one of the reasons why vodka was so oh, popular. I, I agree. I agree. They drank a huge amount of vodka. You could go to places, you know, and they would interact with you, and mm-hmm. they had vodka. And I had heard people come back from there before we went, and they said, well, they drink water. They don't drink the vodka. They give you vodka, but they drink water. And we were there, and I'll guarantee you, those people did not drink water, but they drank <laughs> vodka like it was water. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And and it was probably, in some cases, safer than the water they had access to. But yeah, those, and I remember the, the apartments, if you got one, you probably lived with your in-laws and uh, two or three uncles and cousins and, you know, no privacy, so and probably limited TV. So what are they going to do? You know, vodka was right there and they could forget their, their existence for a while because yeah, it was very bleak, very bland, uh, un, uh, very unhappy looking way of living. I wanted to tell you one thing that amazed me when I was there, they gave us an opportunity to sit down with some uh, people from one of the smaller cities we were in. I want to say we were in Kharkiv, but I don't know for sure. I think we were, yeah. Um, and this group of people we were sitting with were with translators talking to us. And uh-huh. I know they were party members. I know they weren't the average person. But as we were speaking back and forth with them, this woman said to us, please don't bomb us. <laughs> and I looked at her and I said, please don't bomb us. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I think we all realized right then that our governments had placed us in this position to where that we were head on facing them without their desire or our desire to be that way. But that in the Cold War, that's the way it looked to everybody that the other side was going to kill you. And they were as afraid of us as we were of them. Oh, I, I, that's exactly, exactly my opinion. It was uh, almost like a third world country or the first world military. But I remember seeing school kids in Moscow getting some ice cream uh, till the ice cream ran out. And, and I remember taking I've actually got a picture of a, a wedding, uh, a wedding uh, picture taken out after the ceremony. They went out and took some pictures in a, a park like sitting. But they were just people doing the best they could getting along with what where they were. They they weren't against us. They didn't hate us. They just wanted to survive, just like anybody else. Mike, I think to wrap up with here, we uh, can go to the present day and realize that there's a lot of change that's gone on in the time from when the wall went down and when uh, Ukraine became an independent country and today. Mm-hmm. But I think there are still the parallels I mean, we definitely are within living memory of how it was. Oh, yeah. And it appears it's it's headed back that way if Ukraine loses their independence. Right. And it's already that way for the people in Russia, that they are going to be under a dictator and not under a government that cares about them as much as Western governments care about their people. Not at all. Uh, I mean, yeah, they're under government that... 
the people are not a consideration. Unlike, you know, here or most parts of the world, the government, is, you know, supports society and, and provides for uh, infrastructure, things like that. But in the, in the, the Russia, the Soviet Union, that, that area, people are just workers and they're not revered. Individual liberty was not revered. And it was just uh, they were getting along as best they could. And that's all like uh, really what I thought. I have to agree with that, and I uh, I appreciate you giving me your perspective on this. Uh, you know, we really haven't talked in quite a long time. Uh, we finished up that trip. Uh, all of us had our separate lives. We right. we held together. We were quite a, a cohesive group all the time we were there, kind of had each other's back. Hell, and yeah. Then, and then we got on the airplane out of there, uh, and when we got back to the U.S., I thought, We'll go through customs, and we'll all meet, and we'll all talk again. Uh-huh. And then I realized, no, no, everybody grabbed their suitcase and headed for their gate, and this is over. It's yeah. uh, it's yeah. like we were all tied together, and then we were just cut loose, and we saw each other again, but mm-hmm. we never saw each other like that. It was a tremendous bonding experience. Each of us took it as a group, and then each of us took it as the individual and went on back with our lives. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it was, it definitely was a good group. And, you know, we, we for, you know, life gets in the way of, you know, having friends and getting together, I guess. And we all had our jobs and I got back and, and did a lot of shows, uh, a lot of slideshows from, you know, my perspective of what I saw, some of the pictures I had. But, you know, as, as a group, it's, it would be, be nice to get together and compare notes. But I think most of it had, most of us had the same basic impression that I was glad to get home and I, I had a Big Mac the first thing when I got home. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, uh, the Soviets opened a McDonald's yeah. restaurants a few later years after that. Yeah, later. And, uh, they, uh, they did westernize quite a bit. Uh, I regret seeing the invasion. Uh, oh, I yeah. pray for the Ukrainian people that they are not overrun uh, and that they can, again, uh, maintain their freedom with our help. It's just a question of how much we can help them with two countries that are armed to the teeth with nuclear weapons. Mike Railsback, thank you very much for talking with me. And uh, may you enjoy retirement as I'm doing it. And uh, I hope to see you again in person someday. Absolutely, Ken. I appreciate uh, the time and the opportunity. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories, send an email to ken at betterthannothing.com. Nothing is spelled N-U-T-H-I-N. If you can't remember that, send it to kenroot at gmail.com. We'll try to put out one of these every week, and you can sign up with your podcast service to be reminded when the next one's available. As I now turn 73 years old, I've decided to have two kinds of days, good ones and great ones. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.